one problem singing from the screen is that I don't have a hymn book. And I'd like actually to remind you of the second verse of that hymn uh, about murmuring at God's wise decrees. If he is the Lord omnipotent, how can we do that? And that is the theme of our uh, preaching this morning. Would you turn please to Philippians chapter 2. Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, continuing in this letter. He writes it to this church in the town of Philippi. Still there, isn't it? In Greece. Let's start with verse 12. Okay. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, sorry, let me, let me read from the one that's on the, uh, on the screen there. So Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing. That you may become blameless and harmless. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Our theme this morning is What's there in verse 14? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. I think you'll agree with me, this is a very, very practical subject. Perhaps it's one that you've not thought about very much before. So the first thing I need to do is to show you how important this is. And then we shall look at the exact meaning of the words. There are various translations. There in the New King James, we had complaining and disputing. If you have the NIV, you have complaining and arguing. If you have the ESV, which is what I'm using, it's grumbling or questioning. That gives you a good idea of what we're talking about. Complaining, grumbling. Arguing, questioning. So first of all, let me tell you why this is so important. First of all, it's the only specific command that is given in the context. Paul tells the Philippians, 
work out your salvation. And he only gives one directive specifically how to do that. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. And therefore, he's directing us to to something that we must pay attention to if we're going to truly work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And the second reason why it's important, if you look at verse 14, it says, do all things without grumbling or questioning. This is not something that's restricted to certain things in life. But in anything you do, wherever you speak or even have thoughts, because that's an activity, do it all without grumbling or questioning. It's universal. And then thirdly, why it's important, this is what makes Christians different from the world. Isn't that what he says in verse 15? That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Is it true that grumbling and complaining is so much a part of our culture? Is that true? Could it be said that the, the, the British are a nation of grumblers? Well, someone wrote a book about uh, football and they were trying to explain why after the football results are read out on a Saturday afternoon at five o'clock, and this is particularly at BBC Radio Sheffield, why after that the listening audience becomes so few. They listen to the results and then it seems like the radio is turned off. And this was what the author wrote as the reason. I know what we are in Britain. We're a nation of grumblers. We grumble about everything. If you go to a football match and your team win two or three nil, you say, oh, we should have had six. We're never satisfied. It's a very British characteristic. It's not a Christian, of course. So what apparently in the late 1980s BBC Radio Sheffield did was to introduce a phone-in at, at 10 minutes past five. And they told listeners, you can have a grumble. It developed into a, a phone-in called Praise or Grumble, and apparently, so I read, it quickly became the most listened to program on local radio. 
in the late 1980s. Listen to this. England, which boasts of being the land of greatness, liberty and wealth, is also the land of petty grievances and small complaints. The English have often been designated a nation of grumblers, for it seems to be one of our chief delights to be constantly on the watch for something which annoys us, only that we may have the pleasure of finding fault with it. The gusto with which we set to work to pick very large faults out of very small things is so general that it deservedly ranks amongst our national pastimes and privileges. I don't read the Edinburgh Journal. I found that on the internet. That's from the Edinburgh Journal of 1844. So there's nothing new, is there? There's a lot of truth then in that grumbling is part of culture. We may just dismiss it, but it can so easily rub off on us. And so I say to you, for these three reasons, this command, it's actually a prohibition, isn't it? Do them without grumbling or disputing. Let's now try to understand the meaning of these words. First of all, the word grumbling. And I want you to get a feel from the word, for the word, from four New Testament examples where this is used. First of all, there's Matthew chapter 20. It's a parable that Jesus told about people laboring in the vineyard. People were employed from uh, six o'clock in the morning and they were told you get a denarius. And people who were employed at five o'clock in the evening, an hour before the ending of work, were told you'll get a denarius and all agreed. And when it came to uh, payment, those who had slaved, as they would have thought, the whole day and got the same amount that those who had only worked an hour received, they grumbled. Verse 11, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. Verse 12 saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. Verse 13, but he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Complaining, it's not fair. I ought to receive more than someone who's only worked an hour, even though you had previously agreed. Complaining. Luke chapter 5 and verse 30. Levi or Matthew has a great feast. He has invited his uh, friends, his tax collectors and others to meet with Jesus. In verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? We wouldn't do it. Why are you doing it? 
criticism, being judgmental. It's another occasion of grumbling. You have another one in John's Gospel, chapter 6, where people don't like what Jesus says in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They didn't understand it. They couldn't square it with the fact in verse 42 where they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I've come down from heaven? And Jesus tells him in verse 43, don't grumble among yourselves. They were impatient. They, they felt they had to understand everything. If they didn't, they grumbled. And then finally, there's an example that Peter gives in 1 Peter 4.9 where he commands the Christians to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. You see, it's very possible to do something that God commands and yet inside there's really an unwillingness. I wish I didn't have to do it, but I guess I've got to do it. It's like the child who was told to stand up and said, I've stood, but my heart is still sitting. Do all things without grumbling. Now, back then in Philippians chapter 2, there can be no question that Paul uses this word with an eye on the Old Testament. We must understand that Paul and other biblical writers, they knew their Old Testaments. That was their Bible. So they didn't have the New Testament as we have it. It's what they read. They knew the language. They knew the words, just like we do. You can hear someone praying, can't you? And say, are oh, they using words out of the King James Version? Yeah. Because that's what they're familiar with. There's no question that Paul here, when he says, do all things without grumbling, he's going back to the time when the Israelites came out of Egypt, came to Mount Sinai, were told to go up to Canaan, and time after time after time, they grumbled. They murmured. He specifically refers to it in his letter to the Corinthians, his first letter, where he says, don't grumble as some of them did and they were overthrown in the wilderness. And then here in Philippians 2, if you look at verse 15, where he talks about the crooked and twisted generation, that's exact words out of Deuteronomy 32. We'll look at that a bit later. Why didn't the people of Israel enter Canaan? Why did they have to wander for 40 years in the wilderness and die there all except Joshua and Caleb? You know the reason? They grumbled. They murmured. 
they put God to the test. If you can turn to Numbers 14. If you can't, please just listen. Uh, Numbers 14, this is when they've refused to go up and God pronounces judgment upon them. Verse 26 of Numbers 14, And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upwards, who have grumbled against me, not one of them shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. And earlier he said, ten times. You have put the Lord to the test. Although they had complained to Moses or about Moses and about Aaron, God says, you put me to the test. Because, of course, Moses and Aaron were appointed by God. And to complain against those whom God has appointed is to complain against the God who appointed them. You remember, they came to Marah, Exodus 15, no water. They grumbled against Moses. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? It wasn't a question. It was a grumbling. It was a dissatisfaction. It was a complaint that Moses, you've done wrong in bringing us here. They come into the wilderness of sin and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. That's Exodus 16 and verse 2. They come to Rephidim chapter 17. And there's no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Can you hear the way they said it? And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt? And so it went on. Ten times God recorded that that happened. They ought to have been grateful for what the Lord had done. They're asking, why did you bring us out of Egypt? Well, the answer's obvious, isn't it? I brought you out of Egypt to save you from your slavery to the Egyptians, where you've been oppressed for hundreds of years. But they could only focus on the present problems. Their dissatisfaction led to complaining. What are they saying? Moses, you've not done right. Better if. What are they saying? God, you've not done right. Better if. And so they refused to submit to the Lord. 
So my friends, this is how we begin to work out our salvation. If you're a Christian, if the Lord has saved you from your sins, this is where you begin according to Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul, stop being like the murmuring Israelites. It's such a, a feature of our culture. Don't take it in to your life of salvation. The temptation will be there because just like with the Israelites, God was deliberately leading them into those situations of difficulty, wasn't he? He's the one who led them to Mara, where the water was bitter. He's the one who led them into the wilderness where there was no food. He's the one who led them to Rephidim where again there was no water. And God does that to his children to test them. And you and I, we have known it and we are going to continue to know Mara's and Rephidim's on our journey to the promised land and the temptation is going to be to murmur to grumble it's a very real temptation this of course had relevance first of all to the church in Philippi you can pick up as you read the letter there were struggles in that church just as there are struggles in any church so if it comes to the church in Philippi, then it comes to the church in uh, Liverpool 8, doesn't it? We need this as well. Just think of Paul here in, in Philippians. And he says, there are some people, while I'm in prison, because that's where he's writing this from, they're preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. Chapter 1, verse 15. They say, ah, Paul's out of the way, now we can make a name for ourselves. He says in chapter 1, verse 27, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There seems to have been a very real Danger, perhaps they'd fallen into it, of disunity in the church. So he emphasized it there and he, he comes again in chapter 2 to say the same thing. Complete my joy, verse 2, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So he brings in the example of Christ. But clearly there were struggles, there were tensions, the possibility of divisions in the church. We know of one, don't we? We know there was a Euodia and a Syntyche. And Paul says, I beseech them to agree in the Lord. It's even possible that they had problems with their leaders because when he tells them in chapter 2 he's going to send Epaphroditus back to them as he's with him in, in prison, he says, honour such men. It's quite possible that he knows that some of the leaders don't get the honour that they ought to have. And so he makes a special point of, 
of saying that. You see, murmuring, grumbling, it promotes ill will, promotes envy. Why should Paul get all the glory? Why should he be such a, a notable preacher, not me? It's actually plural, it's murmurings. There are many kinds and many situations. It involves all complaints that we have about other members of the church, about our leaders, and perhaps even about outsiders who are causing difficulties to us. So there's grumbling or murmuring. And then secondly, there's questioning. If there's any distinction between the words, grumbling are the words we say and questionings are what goes on in the heart. You can see that in uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, just to give you an example. Here's a man whose right hand was withered. In verse 7, the scribes and the Pharisees are watching. They want to see what Jesus will do. It's a Sabbath. Will he heal? Or will he wait till the next day? They want, it says in verse 7, to find a reason to accuse him. But it says, he knew their thoughts. Same word as questionings. He knew what was going on in their mind. Not thoughts that were seeking the good of the man with the withered hand or of Jesus, but rather they were thinking, how can we get victory over this blasphemer, Jesus of Nazareth, and get him to death? So such thoughts that go on in the mind they, of course, eventually come out. It may be in a, a conclave as a few people get together and pour out their complaints one to another. Of course, the person about whom they're complaining is not in that group. It's that sort of question. It leads to arguments. In the Church of Rome, there were people who were called strong in faith. They were arguing it over those who are weak in faith. And Paul says, don't do that. It's not for their good. Build them up. Don't, uh, don't cut them down. When Paul writes to Timothy, he says, men should pray. They should lift up uh, holy hands without anger or quarreling. And it's the same word, without this questioning. It's something that doesn't go together with prayer to have such reasonings and disputings in the mind. So what are we talking about then? I hope I've given you enough examples. Grumblings are words. Questionings or disputings emphasize the thoughts from where those words come. And so these two things are joined together. It's not enough to zip the mouth. We need to control 
the thoughts. Grumblings and disputings come from a refusal to accept what God has appointed in one's life. You refuse to accept the leaders he's given you, whether in the church, in society, in the home. It's a refusal to accept the brothers and sisters that he's given you in the church. We are a motley bunch, aren't we? And that's the glory of the church, isn't it? What a, a great sanctifying process goes on because we don't choose who are members of the church. It's the Lord who chooses. He saves them. And I've got my rough edges and you've got yours. And we learn to love one another. But the temptation is always to grumble and complain and dispute and have evil thoughts. This really is the same as being discontented. We say, I know a better way than God and those whom he's appointed. My friends, it's not enough to refrain. Really, wherever there's a negative, where there's a prohibition in the scripture, he's really saying, do all things with contentment. Or what would be even more familiar to you, do all things with thanksgiving. Then the third thing, want to bring to you is the result. I've shown you the importance. I trust you understand what they are. Now, what's the result of not grumbling here in Philippians 2 and verse 15? It says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. When God helps us to overcome the temptation to grumbling and questioning, we are blameless. We're innocent. We're without blemish. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? It seems all to be pinned or to hang upon this one thing. That's how important it is. It's vital that we be known as people who are not guilty of these things, but rather are people of contentment and joy and thanksgiving. When it says blameless, of course, it doesn't mean without any sin. It means nobody can point a finger of accusation for blame. Abraham was to be like this. God said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Be blameless so that people who watch your life can't say, ah, oh, that person's always complaining, always murmuring, never says a good thing. Then it says innocent. The word literally means 
not mixed, so it means sincere or genuine. It was used for wine, which was diluted, or for, for uh, uh, metal, which had uh, additives to it. So innocent in the sense, not hypocritical, not like the child who stands up with the body, but the heart is still seated in rebellion. And then without blemish. Children of God without blemish. It's the picture of a sacrificial animal. Before it could be offered to the Lord, had to be examined. Are there any blemishes, any spots, any cuts, any injuries? It was unacceptable. It had to be a, a, an unblemished animal and so acceptable to God. And then the second result is that you show yourself to be a child of God. Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Again, I'd like us to go to Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. This is the song of Moses. Really relating what's going to happen. This is what God says of his people. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. You see the four words which are the same as Philippians chapter 2? no question that Paul has this in mind. These people are being rejected. They are no longer his children because of their blemishes, because they are crooked and twisted. They're not upright. And what Paul is saying to us is that we show ourselves to be the genuine children of God. May we say the true Israel of God when we don't grumble and question. So there are many ways to answer the question. Who is the true child of God? Many ways in the Bible, but here's one of them. You're a person who is content, who is thankful as opposed to grumbling and questioning. So to finish with this morning, I've got two questions I want to ask. First of all, can it ever be right to grumble or to question? Because surely some of you are saying, but there are things wrong in this world. Surely I need to say something about them, at least sometimes. Well, it all depends on the motive of the heart. It all depends whether what you're saying comes from a heart of dissatisfaction, of discontent, rather than a submissive heart. 
when Jesus said on the cross, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't from a heart of rebellion. But how often the question, why, is a very rebellious question. It's a murmuring, disputing question. So it's not wrong to ask God humbly, why God, why, why have you put me in this situation? Why is this happening? As long as we're ready for God's response. If you have a problem with a fellow Christian or with a leader in the church or with something that's going on in the church, a decision that's been made, you know the Bible is very clear how to deal with it, isn't it? It's very clear how you don't deal with it. You don't seethe in yourself and nor do you gossip or slander. We go humbly to find out the truth from whoever it is that we have a complaint with. What do you do then in this holiday season when you go on holiday and the whole week or two is bad weather? Just trying to be relevant. Yeah, it's not wrong to say, boy, the weather's bad. But if that comes from a dissatisfied heart that my holiday was spoiled because of the weather, then there's something wrong. What do you do when you say the trains are always late? Or the M6? Oh, it's so slow, isn't it, between junctions 19 and 16? Uh, because of the road. When are they going to end? Well, it just depends on the heart, doesn't it? I mean, that's practical. And don't you find yourself tempted? I do. That's why I'm bringing you these very, very realities. And in church, there are always things you don't like, aren't there? And you don't agree with? How do you deal with it, my friends? Let me give a test. If you can give thanks to God for your leaders, for your fellow church members, for the rain that you had every day on your holiday, because as I've told many of you, rain's a great blessing. If you can give thanks to God for the delay on the M6 because it gave you the chance to listen to the sermon all the way through, if you can give thanks to God in those situations, then you're not murmuring, are you? But if you can't, it's possible that you have a murmuring spirit. Then my second question, how can we conquer this sin of grumbling and questioning? Well, first of all, we've got to confess that we have been guilty and repent. It is a sin, isn't it? It's a grievous sin. It's a sin that excluded a whole generation of people from the promised land. And secondly, don't lose sight of what God has done for you in Christ. I mean, we say, 
how can they be only three days? Three days, that's Wednesday, isn't it? This coming or Thursday past. Three days, they went through the Red Sea as on dry ground and they saw the whole Egyptian army annihilated. How could they forget? But they did. It's human nature, sinful human nature. Don't lose sight of what God has done for you in Christ. He saved you from a far greater slavery than Egyptian slavery. He's given you a far greater salvation than entering the land of Canaan. He's given you every blessing in Christ. He may test you with difficult circumstances, but those things don't counteract what he's done for you in Christ and the glorious promises that he's given you. That's why we need to be in the word and sit under the word. So those things come to us again and again and again because we're too prone to forget and we start to murmur. And thirdly, remember the example of Christ. We have it here in Philippians too, don't we? It's been preached to us. He wasn't self-seeking. He wasn't complaining. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, saying, why do I have to do this? He humbled himself and he was obedient even to the death upon the cross. Then lastly, have a right view of God's providence. The Lord is king. Lift up your voice, O earth and all ye heavens rejoice. And if that's true, how can we murmur and grumble? We need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And you need to know that as a Christian, God is sanctifying you. Sanctifying me. You know how he does it, don't you? Gets the rod of discipline. He says, I'm going to bring you to a place where there's no water. See if you really trust me. It's going to make your stomachs ache for a while to see if you really trust me. He's a wise father. God knows what he's doing. All the difficulties of your Christian life, he has a good purpose to sanctify you. Let it be said very clearly, God is not concerned about your prosperity in this life. That is the prosperity of this life. He's concerned about your spiritual prosperity. And he's going to do it. And we need to trust him. May the Lord help us to be a people who uh, eschew this character because of these things and a people who are filled with joy, thanksgiving and contentment in the Lord. Let's pray. Please, Lord, you've given us such great privileges, such blessings. Help us not to forget them, but this morning to be so taken up with what you've done for us in Christ that the little hiccups of our life, those slight momentary afflictions become exactly that, 
because we know they're preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Bless your word, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.